like to open your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, um, uh, James mentioned it. We sang about it. It's written right there for unto us. A child is born and a son is given. And I think it's, it's very appropriate right before Christmas that we uh, just think about um, about this. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and it's such a great privilege to be in it. I mean, it's just amazing to have your word that tells us about you, to know that people have worked so hard to preserve it. Some people even paid for their lot with their lives to translate it. And Lord, um, we have it so accessible. And Father, it doesn't just have the power to inform us. It has the power to transform us. And we go to it and we just think, my goodness. It's so good. You're so good. There's no book like it and there's no person like you. And we pray, Father, that you would um, help us, Lord, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might see you just a little bit clearer, that we might see you just a little bit even more intimately. And only you can make that possible, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah was written... 800 years, about 800 years before Jesus actually came. Um, it's full of prophecies. The, the Bible has, the Old Testament has, has about 300 prophecies of the future that are not ambiguous. They are very detailed, especially when it comes to the Messiah the Savior of the world. In Micah 5, 1 and 2, it says where the Messiah would be born. In Daniel chapter 9, it states when exactly the Messiah would come. I mean, not a date, but it says from the going, the way that they did dates during that time was from this event until that event, there'll be that many years. And you have that in the book of Daniel chapter 9. In the book of Isaiah, it states how he would come, that he would come as a servant, that he would come <laughs> humble, and that he would actually die for our sins. In Psalm 22... It actually states how he would die. They have pierced my hands and my feet. You know, and, and we could go on and on with, you know, that, that, that he would be traded for 30 pieces of silver. You know, you could go on and on with the prophecies that were in the Old Testament way before. And actually God said this, I tell you things before they happen 
so that when they actually happen, you will know that it's me that said it. It's the measurement that God has put there for us to know, have confidence that it's God that said it and not man. Prophecy is one of the most strengthening elements of the Christian faith. Point being that this Messiah, this Savior, this King was promised. You see, the fall of man, and you know it's interesting to me at times that people don't believe in Adam and Eve. You know, they're like, oh my goodness, you don't really believe in Adam and Eve. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you are an evolutionist, whether you are a creationist. At the beginning, there had to be one man and one woman. Without one man and one woman at the beginning, there's no creation. There's no line. There's no development of the human race. But in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man. We have man choosing for themselves, tempted by the devil, as opposed to trusting and abiding in what God had put them. And I think we will never grow as Christians. We will never really grow as Christians healthy if we, if we minimize the fall of Genesis 3. Once we understand the fall of man and the implications of the fall of man, all of a sudden the world makes sense. There's the physical aspect. God said in the day that you eat, of the fruit, you will die. And it took time, but I mean, I believe with all my heart that they died spiritually that day, but they eventually died physically. Death is directly connected with the fall of man, with the rebellion. You know, if I talk differently, maybe uh, some people kind of have different antennas, you know? I mean, in the universe that we live, there's certain things that are going on and the rebellion of man broke the harmony that God had set. Physical. We are aging. We have illnesses. We have death. That's directly connected with the fall of man. Spiritual. There is a spiritual death. The Bible says that we were dead in sins and trespasses. We, you know, I, I, remember, I remember people would telling me that Jesus was God and that God had come in the flesh and I could not understand that no matter how much I tried to get my head around it, it just made no sense. They would use nice illustrations about a king and this and that, but it just didn't make sense. And then one day I heard about Jesus, I received Jesus into my heart and all of a sudden things made sense. What was the difference between after and before? The difference between after and before is that I was dead. There was a spiritual death, an inability to perceive. It's kind of like having internet through the wire and, and having routers, but having no Wi-Fi. All of a sudden, you get a gadget with Wi-Fi and you have access. Well, that spiritual death is connected directly 
to the fall of man. We have a sinful nature. We are rebels by birth. And we often get ourselves into trouble through our thinking we know everything better. This nature, and I told you guys about my friend's church website. It said, do not enter this area. And boom, I clicked in it. It says, you have sinned. And then it gave me the gospel. But we have this tendency inside of us, this dissatisfaction. And then there's the cosmic aspect of it, the effects of the fall, which are, um, you know, you think that the, it says the earth is groans. And you have earthquakes, and you have volcanoes, and you have, and, and you have, I mean, really, as beautiful as the world is, this is not the world God created. This is a messed up aspect of the world that God created. God's creation was even more glorious, and some of the tragedies that we have are directly connected with the fall of man. This is why when Jesus, uh, when, when Martha and Mary called for Jesus because Lazarus died, when Jesus went and he saw the pain in Mary, the pain in Martha, the unbelief or the distant belief, and, 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 and it says, the shortest verse in the Bible, it says that Jesus wept. He cried. And, and, the, and the thought of him crying in that moment is, is actually the snoring of a horse. It was just an explosion of, 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 of emotion in that moment. And the reason he cried is not because he was sad that Lazarus had died. After all, he knew he was going to raise him. The reason he wept, the reason he cried, the reason he snored like that was because he saw the pain that sin had brought into the world and how broken the world was. It would be like if you were one of the architects in Hiroshima and you helped develop that city and then you go to visit after the atomic bomb was dropped there. And you just saw all that beauty and all this stuff just completely shattered. You saw broken pieces everywhere. And you would just be moved with pain. It's a fallen city. Although the world is beautiful and has potential, it is a fallen world we live in. And the hope throughout the whole Old Testament of those prophecies was for a savior to come and rescue mankind from this terrible situation that the world is in. Job said it, is there a man that can put his hand on us both? Job said, I know that my redeemer lives. And you see this hope looking forward in the Old Testament towards this Messiah coming. In contrast, there's this hope in the Old Testament of this Messiah that will come, but 
In contrast, there's the hopelessness of the world. In the determination to leave God out of our lives, they've, they, they've, they've succeeded in bringing hopelessness into the world. I mean, after all, we do have the second law of thermodynamics, which is, it just says that the, the, the whole universe is winding down, which is true. The whole universe is winding down. And we are being told in school that we are just mere accidents with an accidental beginning, with a random and certain end, just cruising through our solar system, our galaxy, and the universe with no meaning what is so ever, whatsoever. And then we wonder why our kids are so down so confused and, you know, even hurting themselves because they've been made to buy into the narrative that our culture has decided is truth. Yet God... In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, In the dispensation of the fullness of the times that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And it's interesting because, I mean, this verse is it, it, it's saying, you know, there's, there's a plan. There's a creator. There's a planner. And he is bringing together everything. He is redeeming. And you know, oftentimes in Christian realms, we kind of tend to personalize everything. He is my savior. We take communion, you know, and it's like, you, we, we, we have our, you, you go to the States nowadays, even in the UK, we don't have that here. We, 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 we just don't want to spend the money on it, I guess. But, but, uh, but they have little cups with the drink in it, with the, with the wine, with the juice. <laughs> And then they have a little plastic and then a little cracker on top with a plastic on top. So you get the whole thing. And everyone is, he died for my sins. Yes, and it's true. He died for my sins and he came to redeem me for heaven. But you know what? He didn't just die for my sins. He died for your sins. That's why there was the one loaf, the one bread. And he says, as often, break. As often as you eat from this bread, from this body, do it in remembrance of me. Take this cup. This is my blood given for you, for all of us. But it's not just for us as individuals personally and even collectively. Jesus died for the creation. <coughs> He's going to redeem not only the human race, but, cre uh, but, but the cosmos, the universe. It is also the earth, the solar system, the universe. And in Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that we may grow in the depth of this. Paul prays that we may know that the eyes of our understanding may be enlightened for what? That we may know the hope of his calling. Hope. 
And here in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So here we have this verse, and it's interesting because if you read chapter 6 of, of this book, it, uh, Isaiah says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And it was in a moment where someone that was a, 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 a symbol of strength, a symbol of leadership, had died. And, and you know, um, they, they were sort of left with a bunch of kings before. They were just, they did right in the eyes of the Lord. And Judah, some of them, seven of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The other ones did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And of the... And of the books of, of the kings of Israel, there was not, not a single one that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They were done with leadership because of the fall of man. And according to the Bible, all the hope of the world is found in this child that would be born, in this son that would be given. Uzziah dies, and they're like, where is the leadership? The nation is in darkness. Where is the hope for our nation? And Isaiah writes, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, it's interesting. No matter who's been a leader in the world, they had to be born. And here, God was going to give his son, and this child would be born and according to the Bible, all the hope of the world is found in this child born and in this son given. Number one, he will be a king. This Christmas, this initial Christmas that we celebrate, the whole World, the whole Old Testament and the whole, uh, those God-fearing, they were looking forward to this one king that would come. Daniel put it this way. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall consume all these kingdoms and it shall be forever. I mean, God was going to establish, I mean, this, this kid is born, and he's going to be the king. But his kingdom will never have an end. So you would have a stable kingdom. 
You would have a, a certain stability. And we've seen the volatileness of government, haven't we? I mean, in, in, uh, through COVID and, or even without COVID, you see the, the, the shifts in countries. You see Iran, for example, in 78, when, when uh, the czar is kicked out and next thing you know, these guys take over and they hijack the country. The whole country shifted. You see places um, like, 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 like China, like the, uh, you know, and, and different places all, all over the world, just the, these, these shiftings. You see the United States when you have a president every four years and you just kind of wonder, what am I going to get the next four years? But with this king, there will be, there will be stability. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 3 and, uh, through 7, it says four beasts will come, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dreadful, terrible, and exceedingly strong one that will come afterwards. The lion, as you look through the book of Daniel, was uh, Babylon. Then you have the Medo-Persians. The leper is the one that swiftly, Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire. And then finally you have Rome that takes over and they are ruthless. They, they build the roads. They, they conquer the whole world. And in verse 13 it says, And I was watching in the, mid, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one that shall not be destroyed. And guys, I mean, you, you see these four, um, these four kingdoms there were before, and you know what? They thought they were going to live forever. They thought they were going to rule forever. The Greeks thought it. The Medo-Persians thought it. Babylon, remember God told them, make the head of gold, but the rest make of different elements. And he said, no, I'm making the whole thing of gold because my kingdom will last forever. Go to Greece. See all the ruins. Go to Rome, see all the ruins. There is no kingdom on earth that will last forever except the kingdom of this child that was born, of this son that was given. Not Russia, not Ukraine, not China, not Iran, not the EU, not the United States. Everybody thinks their kingdom will last forever. Only Jesus' kingdom will last forever. But it's interesting because how will he establish this? How does he establish this? Because Jesus is not an arrogant king. He is a humble king. Notice in the verses we read, it says the kingdom is given to him. He doesn't take it. In the world today, we see people taking kingdoms, taking things. In the Trinity, there's the perfect harmony of God gives his son the kingdom. Humility. Listen, I, I met in Nashville, I met a poet. And this poem that he wrote 
has been chosen to be read by the King of England, this, of, the, of the United Kingdom, this year at the carol service. And he wrote, Malcolm Geith is his name. It says, we find of him, we think of him as safe beneath the steeple or cozy in a crib beside the font, but he is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want. For just as we sing our final carol, his family is up and on the road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glazing behind and shouldering their load. Whilst Herod rages, still from his dark tower, Christ clings to Mary, fingers tightly curled. The lambs are slaughtered by the men of power, and death squads spread their curse across the world. But every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the Lamb upon the throne. And here you have a king, but you have a humble king. Notice it says he's born. I mean, here's the king of the universe. He is born, and he has to flee to Egypt, an earthly king. In his humility. And yet people mock with sarcasm at Jesus and even have prejudices. It's amazing in every conversation that I have with people how oftentimes you just have to walk through the prejudices that people have of Jesus. Not who Jesus is, but who they think Jesus is. And you kind of have to work through the thought process of, no, actually, Jesus is not like that at all. He's not like that at all. And it's amazing because today we, uh, I mentioned that verse of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And you know what? That being transformed by the renewing of our mind is um, it, it, it's the word of metaphormosis, kind of like what happens to a, a caterpillar when they turn into a butterfly. You know, they're in the cocoon and they're wrapped in all their thread. And, 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 and you know, they, they're, 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 they're in there and something's happening inside of them. They're not doing it to themselves. Something's happening to them. And next thing you know, the wings begin to grow. The transformation happens. And next thing you know, they push out of the cocoon. They open it. And then the blood begins to flow to the extremities, extremities of, the, of the wings. And the color goes there. And they are a butterfly. They don't do that themselves. They allow it to happen to them. And that's the word for being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to allow our minds to be transformed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God so that we will see Jesus as the King and Jesus as the humble King because we're used to proud kings, not humble kings. But he's not just the authoritative king and the humble king. He is also the loving king. Everything that Jesus did was moved by love. I was having a conversation with, uh, with Adrian Reynolds, actually, on Wednesday. And he said, there, there, what worries me, I can do the right thing. I, what did, what, oh, I forgot what he said. <laughs> but but I, I know the conclusion of it. He says, but sometimes... I can do the right thing for the wrong motives. 
Jesus never did the right thing for the wrong, for the wrong motives. He always did the right thing with the right motives. His motivation in healing the blind man, in the conversation with the woman at the well, in the conversation with Nicodemus, in his going, in, in his dealing with Peter's, with, with John, with the Sanhedrin, with everybody that he dealt with, he always dealt with them through love. The prayers. When he prayed out of love for his father, out of love for people, his conversations, the teaching, the teachings were driven not by making himself great, but by actually because of loving the people. The coming to earth. I think of these lepers, you know, the, no, actually not even lepers, these, these missionaries, the Moravians, the, the, the German missionaries, they would actually go to the Caribbean to leper camps to share the gospel with them, knowing that they would get leprosy and would have to remain there forever. And they would go there out of love for the lepers, realizing that they had an, a temporary life that they were able to exchange for an eternal life. And here, I mean, we think of those guys going to the lepers, these German people, but think infinitely greater God left heaven and earth because he loves you. Because he loves you. He loves us. He loves man. Jeremiah 3.1 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you. I have pulled you with loving kindness. Isn't that an amazing verse? But you know, as king, he is humble. He is, he is majestic. He is loving. But also, he is king. There's an authority there. He brings order. He brings order. And, and notice it says it here. And sorry, I'm kind of not mentioning the text very much. But it says, for unto us a son is given, a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And then he says, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then it says, to order in his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forever. You know, when Jesus becomes the king, he orders our life. Whenever Jesus reigns on the earth, there will be order. You see, the effect of sin in the world, it creates chaos. It creates disorder. It creates rebellion. Sin only produces chaos. Righteousness and justice brings order. Sin always takes the law into his own hand. It has one interest. What do I want? What will gratify me? What will give me pleasure? That's rebellion against God. We cannot leave God out of our lives and expect our lives, our society to be in order. The Lord changes people. 
And when the Lord changes chaotic people, they become good citizens in their town. They become good workers at their jobs, and they become good fathers, good mothers, good children in their families. Not perfect. Notice I said not perfect, please. Not perfect, but good. And verse 7, we looked at this last week, I think it was, or the week before. It says, and not only is he a king that brings order, but he is the prince of peace. Of his kingdom, there will be peace. Sin leads to war. James says that why is there wars among you? Because you want and you do not have, so therefore you fight for it. You're going to fight for that which you want. And the devil produces a lack of peace, war within, jealousy, murder. I mean, look at it from the creation. The moment Adam and Eve sin, Cain kills Abel out of envy and jealousy, unforgiving thoughts coming up. So it's not only order, but there is peace. Peace with ourselves, peace with the past, peace with the future, but most importantly, peace with God. And then notice what it says. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It says, upon the... um, Of the increase. Notice the increase. Have you ever noticed the kingdom of God? It's been adding people to the kingdom of God for years now. Sometimes we think of the church as the local church. You know, we think of uh, our congregation. Sometimes we can think of the congregations in Palma. But you know what? The church is not the church here today. The church is every single believer that has ever lived. And every believer that will live in the future. And one day when we gather together, it will be with all the believers in history. The church, the historic church. And and his, his kingdom is spreading lovingly, humbly, majestically. And it's being added. People adding, being added to the church, to this body, to this kingdom of God. Not only by people coming into the kingdom of God, but also it says that one day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. And then lastly, in the explanation, it says, notice this, verse 7, the end. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Listen, guys, this kingdom will never fail. Companies might fail. Uh, earthly kingdoms, the United States might. You know, it's interesting sometimes that we just think of the United States of this great democracy. But you know what? Rome was once the greatest democracy in the world. And it turned into a brutal dictatorship. The stability that we enjoy. The world that we, that, that we, you know, when COVID happened and everything locked down, all of a sudden everybody was like, what is happening? And what we needed 
in that moment that what God achieved, I mean, people were acting in fear in all kinds of ends and all kinds of directions. But what, we, what, what I think what it revealed to me, it's how much we trusted the world systems as opposed to the Prince of Peace, to the King of Heaven. And his, his kingdom will never fail. It must triumph. It will triumph. And we look from above and all of a sudden realize, um, all of a sudden we begin to realize, oh my goodness, this kingdom is, is greater. And this is why when Jesus was born, the angels go to the shepherds. The wise men from different parts of the world, they come and they go to Herod and they said, we've heard a king has been born. And of course, Herod wants his kingdom. And they said, well, hey, let, when, let me find out where he's going to be born. And then when you find him, let me know so that I may worship him. But he was wanting to get rid of the king because he wanted to be worshipped. So, just very quickly, what should this produce in us when we realize this king prophesied about this king which the kingdom was given to, this king that's majestic, he's humble, he's loving. He is the one that will ultimately bring order and peace. What should this produce in us? Well, number one, it should, it should make us not so surprised when we are surrounded by bad government. I mean, I, sometimes I'm, I'm just kind of shocked, particularly with the, in, the, in the United States, and, and I love the United States, and I'm, an, and I'm an American citizen as well, but I'm just shocked that sometimes we have this ideal that the, the United States or that particular countries have to be, the, uh, the governments have got to be perfect. I mean, there's, why are we so surprised that we have rulers that make bad decisions? And, and that's why the Bible says, pray. As a matter of fact, when we read our Bibles, we find ourselves with God working his purposes in spite of Nebuchadnezzar, in spite of Pharaoh, in spite of Belshazzar, in spite of, of, of Nero and Herod and the Caesars. He works his purposes regardless who's in power. And his kingdom keeps going no matter what's going on. Number two, it should make us very confident that in spite of who is in power, God will work out his will. We just think to ourselves, my goodness, but what if I had to leave my house and leave my... Well, the poem I read today was Jesus had to leave his home. And he became a refugee at Christmas. It should fill us with hope that his church is being built and it is unstoppable. It should fill us with great hope that no matter what is going on, righteousness and justice will ultimately prevail. It should fill us with peace to know that we are under such a loving, wise, 
powerful and righteous king. And it should help us to see that we are in the time of the already, but not yet. So he is the king. He is building his church. He is ruling. But of course, we see a world that doesn't seem in obedience to him. We live in a world that is broken. There's still illness. There's still rebellions. There's still uh, earthquakes. There's still catastrophes in the world. And that is because we are in the middle of the already. He has come. And the not yet. There's the book of Revelation that is the guarantee that there's a new heaven and a new earth. And right now is the time to be able to Share the love of God with those around us. He is redeeming a people. Should make us certain that we have a Savior. And listen, guys, this is a huge one. A king has authority over us, it should make us submissive towards Him. Now, I understand submission. It's one of those things that I have a, a, a dear a dear friend, and we were we went to um, um, Windsor Castle in in the UK in London, and we went to the chapel, and and there it's amazing they have all these attributes of of the kings of Solomon, really, that around the whole church, that were ultimately. Um, attributes of Jesus when you really look at it but the king actually took those attributes for himself of course but uh, at one point we Linda and I a friend of mine she um, she, she was looking at at the word submission and, and when we got to it and, and I forgot which verse it was but she, she goes what, what is that and then when she realized what it was she's like she didn't want to say because submission is hard it's hard and you know and sometimes submission is hard also because we've been used by people and we've been hurt by people or we've been controlled by people but listen there is no Christianity without submission it's not I know Christianity is when we get to a point where it's like I can't rule my life even close to as well as he can rule my life. To give him our emotions, to give him our minds, to give him our hearts, to give him our wills, to give him our future, to give him everything in our life. And here we celebrate unto us a, son, a child is born. Unto us a son is given. He, he is the hope of this world. These prophecies, Isaiah, 800 years before. In chapter 7 he says, Behold, I'll give you a sign. A, mare, a, a, a little, a, a virgin will have a child. 
talk about giving an impossible prophecy. I'm telling you, I will give you a sign. A virgin is going to have a child. And then in chapter 9, he says, a child is born, a son is given, and he will be the king, and he will be the prince of peace, and he will put order. And then in chapter 53, he says, he was wounded for our transgressions. This Christmas, is he the king of your life? Because this is where the kingdom begins. It's in our own personal lives and it fills our lives with hope it fills our life with a living hope that nothing in this earth will ever be able to quench let's pray together father we thank you so much lord for for your word and i realize lord that we are sometimes we can be surrounded by um just different views of who you are. But we, we, are, we can read our Bibles and see that many people thought many things about you, but it never changes who you are. You are who you are. And I'm so grateful, Lord, that although you could be moody, you could be a tyrant, you could be uh, capricious, you could be an abuser, you could be everything as the creator, I thank you, Father, that you are the loving the kindest, the most fair, righteous, unbelievably powerful person in the universe. That your desire in establishing your kingdom is that you would establish a kingdom that no kingdom on earth can give us. That you would put a peace, that you would put a uh, um, a, a transformation, an environment unmatched. And I'm so grateful, Lord, that your desires for us are good and pure. And I pray, Father, that here today, that it would not just be the Lord's prayer where we say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, but that it will be the cry of our heart. That our desire as we celebrate Christmas is that it would be your will in our lives. Your plans. Your peace. Your rule. Help us, Lord, this Christmas just to celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen.